If you would, please, everybody open to Revelation 3. We'll read the whole chapter. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have uh, a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repeat it. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, for they will walk with me in a while in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens no one uh, will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come down and bow down at your feet, and make them known that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come, upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast that you have, so that no one will take you from your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the Jerusalem which comes down and out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea I write, the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reproved and disciplined. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. We're better now. Good morning. (laughs) 
we are at the sixth of the seven letters to the churches. I'd like to just go over a, it's a short introduction, uh, hopefully briefly just covering what these letters are about. In the late first century, the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ appeared to John in a vivid vision while he was on the island of Patmos, exiled there, exiled there for a, his bold witness of the gospel of Christ. John is believed to be the only one of the 12 original apostles of Christ who was still alive at that time. Jesus Christ dictated to John seven messages, a specific message to each of the seven churches, and also revealed to him extensive visions and prophecies of things to come. The Lord commanded John to write the messages in a book along with the visions and prophecies and to send the book to those seven churches which were in the province of Asia, it's now modern Turkey. That book is preserved for us in the Bible as the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Today's text, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, is the letter to the church in Philadelphia, a message to the church from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is proclaimed with all authority, urgency, and assurance. It addressed current situations in the church and revealed future events and gave encouraging promises. But this message is also for us today. We know this from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So this message is relevant to us in our church and life situations today. The authority which, which, with which Christ, the head of the church, spoke these words to the church of Philadelphia in the first century is the same authority which, which, with which he speaks to us today. The urgency with which the Lord Jesus spoke when he said, Behold, I am coming quickly, is certainly no less urgent today. And the assurance and promises that Jesus gave to those who had an ear to hear applies to us today if we meet the conditions that he attached to them. So, I would like to just begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, it is our desire to hear your word today. May you guide our thoughts, speak to us in our hearts. We thank you for your living and active word that can divide between soul and spirit, can lay the heart bare. Lord, whatever you would desire to speak to your people, us here gathered together in your name for your purpose, may it be done today by your precious Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just with a brief history of Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia, which most of us will know, that means brotherly love, was founded in 18, or, uh, sorry, 189 B.C. by Eumenes II, king of Pergamum. It was probably named after his brother Attalus, 
the second who remained fiercely loyal to him in spite of Roman pressure and who eventually succeeded him as king of Pergamum. In 133 BC, King Attalus III, lacking in error and ready to die, bequeathed the kingdom, kingdom to uh, some Roman allies. A few years later, then, Rome established the region as the province of Asia. That's what we would normally discuss it today. He combined the kingdom of Pergamum with the coastal region of Ionia along the Aegean Sea, which included Smyrna. The city was positioned at the intersection of two trade routes, one from the Phrygian territory to the east to Smyrna, 80 miles to the west, and another diagonal route from Pergamum, 111 miles to the northwest, to Atalia, 187 miles to the southeast, nearly to the Mediterranean. In 17 AD, a devastating earthquake hit Philadelphia and, and 11 surrounding cities, including Sardis, which is 26 miles to the northwest. Philadelphia was rebuilt with the help of the Roman emperor Tiberius. So years, a few years later, the Church of Philadelphia was established. Sometime around 55 AD, as the gospel spread from Ephesus, into the whole surrounding region of Asia. And this is recorded in Acts chapter 19. So this letter to the church in Philadelphia would have come about 40 years later after they were established. And of note, about 25 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the devastation of the Jewish nation in 70 AD, as prophesied by Christ. We've seen so far from the previous five letters to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis, this pattern from the Lord. He begins each letter by identifying himself in terms that not only establish his authority to speak to the church, but also point to attributes of himself that they need to recognize, whether for correction of personal or corporate sin, or for confidence in coming trials. He always reminds the church that he knows their works. A reminder that he knows all. Everything is laid bare. And he commends them for ways in which they have been obedient and faithful. And then he confronts them if there are any sins or errors of doctrine that they must repent of, warning them of consequences. And after warning them if they will be facing trials, the Lord then ends with an appeal to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and promises specific blessings for those who overcome. Last week we looked at Sardis, a letter to Sardis, and it was of note because there was no commendation, but rather an immediate rebuke and a dire warning. And this letter to the church of Philadelphia is very different. It has multiple commendations, no rebukes. He, he very much praises them for their faithfulness and their endurance. However, the Lord wants them to be aware of some open doors of opportunity that are coming and to hold fast in times of testing. So we begin with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, 
and shuts and no one opens. So three things are mentioned here that we should expect that has, uh, that, that has bearing on the rest of the letter. The first thing is holy. It's interesting that uh, Scott and Carol uh, working together you know, chose the song out of Isaiah 6 and read the first part of it because I'm going to read that as well, but looking at the specific response of Isaiah. God is so great. He is so pure. He is so above us and unlike us that one glimpse of him and we are undone. And this was Isaiah's response. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought he was a dead man. He did not see how he was going to survive. Just having that vision of the Lord. Another example in Revelation 1, chapter 1, verses 14 through 17 and this is when John saw the, the beginning vision that, uh, that it's the beginning of this book. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper, got him to reveal the identity of the one who would betray the Lord. Jesus entrusted his mother into John's care. Surely it will be different from John compared to Isaiah. no. When John saw the exalted Lord in the vision, he fell at his feet dead. This is our response when we come up against the holiness of God. I suppose it's hard for us to imagine. We read these accounts, but if we haven't been there ourselves, we might imagine, or we just don't imagine. (laughs) We just don't know. But if we were ever in that position, in our current state, not glorified, we would have the same response. We must be forgiven to be in his presence, covered, purged by the blood of Christ, and lifted up by the love of God in Christ. I've heard somebody say that God and us are incompatible and he doesn't change. (laughs) So we must be changed. Thank God we will be changed when he returns. But he wants to change us now. He wants to work in our lives and share his holiness with us. He who is holy... He who is true. He is truth. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Every word he speaks is absolutely true. Psalm 12, 6. The word of the Lord, words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The Lord is perfect and upright. Psalm 92, 15. The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. 
and he is absolutely trustworthy. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. <clears throat> has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The Lord wanted to remind Philadelphia of these aspects of him, his holiness and his trueness. But he also adds this one that is a little difficult, out of the ordinary. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. This is a quote from Isaiah 22, chapter 22, verse 22. I would ask that you turn there. There's a larger context from which to understand what he's getting at. I acknowledge this is a little bit of a difficult passage, and it might be that somebody would understand it a little differently. But I believe this has a significant bearing on the letter Ten of it. There's a passage uh, from verse 15 through verse 25. Verse 15 begins, Shebna, who is over the house. Now, we don't know much about this fellow, but this is quite a pronouncement against him. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? So this person has been exalting himself, making a, an exalted place for himself. And the Lord is pronouncing judgment on him. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I think we can see this is, speaking of Christ, this is a type of Christ. I will fasten him as a peg in a future place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. It's interesting that after this pronouncement against Shebna and Eliakim is given his position. And this is the type of Christ. It, it made me want to ask, then is there a 
type? Is Shebna a type of something? And I believe so. As we continue on in our thoughts here, consider the house of Israel. Consider some of the pronouncements that Jesus made, the things he noted, the way that they provided for themselves, the way they fought to, to maintain their position, the Roman Empire. Providing sepulchers and tombs, they were just really settling in. And at some point, and we know what that point was, the Lord God pronounced judgment. He had been pronouncing judgment, but it happened. He brought Christ on the scene, gave him the house, the rightful owner. And even in this passage is in verse, uh, or chapter 22. From then on, throughout uh, a couple other passages in Isaiah and three more passages in 2 Kings, all five of those passages have this same expression or virtually identical. Consider that this was, had been Shebna who was over the house. Now it says, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, comma, Shebna the scribe. Five times. You like him is established as over the house, and Shebna is an also ran. Just confirming the word of the Lord here. So, I like him here in this passage being a type of Christ. We can see uh, some connections. Isaiah 9 6, the government will be on his shoulder. And here he says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. He shall open and shut, and no man will, will make a change. In verse 24, speaks of the offspring and the posterity. All of this is exemplified by the, by the vessels, the cups and the pitchers are hanging on him. And it had just said, I will fasten him as a peg in verse 23. Now look at verse 25. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and will be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. I can't say that this is crystal clear. I already acknowledged that, but I, I do believe this is speaking of Jesus when another place it speaks of the strike the shepherd, sheep will be scattered. But, but more to the point here that, that the house of Israel hanging, as it were, upon him, he is removed, and the burden that was on it will be cut off. Ezra knew that it was by the grace of a sovereign God only that Israel was given a place. And Ezra 9.8 reads, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to, to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Just thinking of 
quick span through the Old Testament, all the ups and downs. Israel would turn away. God would subjugate them to some people. They would finally, in their misery, would cry out. The Lord would bring them back. They would turn away again. And this went on. But when Jesus was on the scene, remember toward the end of his ministry, he was crying out over Jerusalem and the fact that your house is left to you desolate. There came a time when there was no more opportunities, at least for a long time. But when the blood of Christ was shed on that cross, a fountain was opened that no one could shut. Regarding what the Lord was about to tell them, the church of Philadelphia needed to know that the Lord is holy, true, and sovereign. In particular, they were not to be cowed or swayed by Jews who were still trying to lay claim to a special status with God. God had sovereignly cut off the Jewish nation and grafted the Gentiles into the root of faith by grace. You see this as we went through Romans, particularly in chapter 11. What God had opened, the door of faith to the Gentiles, no one could close. He wanted the church of Philadelphia to be confident of that. They had among them Jews that were, uh, it says not in the church, the letter to Philadelphia, but to Smyrna, that they were blaspheming. And we can expect the same thing was happening in Philadelphia. And what God had closed, the setting aside of the Jewish nation, the natural branches being broken off, no one could open. It was a sovereign work of God. We saw this in Romans 11, that God will one day sovereignly graft the Jews back into their own olive tree. But that will not happen until he has determined that the time of the Gentiles has ended. So meanwhile, the door of faith was in fact still open to the Jews, but it was the same door that the Gentiles could now enter, the door of faith in Christ, the true faith of Abraham. They could no longer lay claim to special status as God's chosen and lorded over the Gentiles. The rending of the veil at the crucifixion of Christ was a clear sign of what God had done. But for the Jews that remained blinded, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. should have brought a certain finality to it. Christ prophesied this in Luke 21, 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. And yet, some of the Jews did not give up easily and they were at work in Philadelphia as they had been in Smyrna, blaspheming the name of Christ and the faith of the Gentiles, which was apart from the works of the law. So we read in, back to Revelation chapter 3, and verse 8, after the Lord has identified himself as holy, true, and the one with the key of David, that has opened the door to the Gentiles, closed it for now to the Jewish nation, he says, I know your works. 
See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. So the Lord commends the church of Philadelphia for their work, for their faithfulness to his word and his name. But he speaks emphatically about the work that he will do. He is sovereign. His own arm will accomplish what he determines. And he is true. The church in Philadelphia can depend on him because he is trustworthy. Take note of the things that the Lord, having noted their little strength and their faithfulness, He then pronounces what he will do. I have set before you an open door. I will make them come and worship. I will make them know. So though the church in Philadelphia only has a little strength, the outcome does not depend upon their abundant strength, but on his. Because they have kept his word and have not denied his name, he will honor them. For those who honor me, I will honor God says in 1 Samuel 2.30. Then in verse 10, he makes a promise about keeping them from trial. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now this is this promise has some interesting words to it that could be taken several different ways. I want to focus on the word uh, words keep and from uh, a look at a typical dictionary for these Greek words. There's a long list of possibilities, but after looking through some of those possibilities. Uh, there were some things that took shape that were common through almost all of them. The word keep for watch over, guard, preserve, take care of, and also observe attentively because that same word is uh, the word kept because you have kept my command. You can see that would mean they've observed attentively. But then the word from is from among or out of, and there's a sense in which it's referring to a motion from the interior of the subject. And I'm going to read a, a few verses that we're probably more familiar with that, that use the same word in a similar context, and then I'll provide a contrasting example that helps, to, helps us to see the difference between these two. In Jude 1 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Same word, preserved and called. 1 Peter 2 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light out of. Same word as from in our text. 
And then Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So those are the same word, same verb there, or a preposition. Now a contrasting example, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Now, in this case, the word keep is a different verb, and the word from is a different preposition. The word, the, the verb keep, means to keep watch, guard, protect. It's very similar, but has more of the nuance of protection, and that's often how it's translated. The word from, though, means away from. And in contrast to the other word from, which was emotion from the interior, this means emotion from the exterior. They're very distinct. So I believe this helps us to, to interpret what this is saying, that rather than being kept from, uh, as in... 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, where we kept from the evil, or they're the evil one. He's going to bring us through, out of, but, but not just completely separate from. You might think of this as in the world, but not of the world. We, in this world, we have trouble, <laughs> but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And I believe that's what he wants here, doesn't it? Us to be overcomers. That's what he always gets to in every one of these letters. And overcoming requires a trial, doesn't it? How could we overcome if, we're, if we don't face a trial to start with? <laughs> overcoming needs an object. So if one would still think that maybe that could be taken a couple of different ways, and perhaps it could, because as I said, they, both the verb and the preposition are quite varied in their, in their nuances, but we could look at it this way, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. If you're not prepared at all, you're in big trouble. If you're prepared for the worst and it's slightly better, you'll be pleasantly surprised. So, as a worst case, What's the worst thing that can happen? If we go through trial. Isaiah 43, verse 1 to 3. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The Lord is going to be the Holy One for the church of Philadelphia, and He will be our Holy One that will deliver us from every evil attempt by the enemy, every trial that we face in this world. So, in verse 11, 
looking at these last three verses, we have several things tied together. An assurance. An assurance of his coming and his reward when he comes. Verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord certainly is coming again. We must be ready. How sad it would be if we are not ready. There is a matter of reward to be concerned about. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. The day of the Lord. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. That is sad to think about that possibility. No reward. If no reward is received, what will you cast down? The feet of the Lord. Several places we see that that the, the elders, the creatures in heaven, but then later us, redeemed, casting our crowns before Him. What crown? If you're saved, though us through fire. And verse 11 says, Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. How is it that somebody would take your crown? There are going to be fights, struggling with our crowns? I don't think so. <laughs> Consider the, this part of the parable in Luke 19. Verse 24 through 26. Just jumping in the middle of it. I think you'll recognize it. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him. This is the one who dug a hole and hid it. What he had been given, he did not use. No gain. No investment in the kingdom of God. Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minus. Jesus continues, For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. If one takes away your crown, it will be the Lord. We need to hold fast. Don't be in that position, brothers and sisters. Let us be diligent to 
invest in the kingdom of God, to invest what he gives us. And this is way more than finances. This is our lives, our gifts. The Holy Spirit gives, is, is given to each one of us, and the Lord distributes his gifts in the body. And we need to use them to edify one another. In verse 12, this is a, a challenging passage referring to these names. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. I'm, I'm just not real sure what these names are. I, the name of God, that's, <laughs> we know some of those names. and We know that, uh, for example, in John 14, when, when Judas, not Iscariot, asked Jesus a really thoughtful question, Jesus responds with, you know, when, when you obey his commands, when you receive his, his word, make a place in your heart. The Father will love us and, and come and make his abode. And eventually, his abode will be with us in the New Jerusalem. What a promise. So, the Father is involved. The name of my God, Jesus, the Lord, the second person of the Trinity speaking I believe he's referring to then the Father. The Father's name. What an honor. And then the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. I believe it sets a context that all this happens in the context of the church. The church, the bride of Christ, is one, yet many, and we are, we are to receive his name, this blessing, this welcome in the context of the church together. And then I will write on him my new name, Jesus speaking. I don't know what that is, but it's wonderful. This is such a, a tremendous blessing. And this is for one who overcomes. Our overcoming is on the basis of the Lord's overcoming. If we walk in his ways, we obey his commands. We love him supremely. He will lead us to victory. Uh, it was an interesting thing I noted uh, uh, looking at some commentary that in New Testament times, pillars often had placards uh, inscribed with the name of the donor. Now, this was, of course, these pagan temples referring to. So people would donate one and, of course, get their name splashed on it. Uh, we, we see this sometimes in memorials or maybe even church pews. Well, it's not that way in God's temple. 
because God's temple is made without hands. So, all pillars are provided by God. So, if we're a pillar in His house, we get His name of ownership and provision. Everything is from Him, through Him, and to Him. Some verses that, that correlate to this are in Zechariah chapter 8, 1, 2, 3, and 7, and 8, the verse numbers. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And Verse 9 of Zechariah 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. Of course, this was for their time, but some of these prophecies are very much referring to the final fulfillment of the New Jerusalem. Listen to these words again. Let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days, in these days, and think about the Philadelphia church hearing this, but think about us too. You have been hearing in these days these words, Revelation 3, by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts. John was among the disciples, the original 12, the apostles, when Jesus founded the church, founded upon himself, the rock, not Peter. Peter, the word, a pebble, a stone, but upon this rock I will build my church. When we read the New Testament, when we read the Gospels and Acts, this is the Lord founding his church. Those who spoke in the day of the foundation, that the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. Later on in in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 13, verse 9, I will bring one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. And then Zechariah 14, verse 20 and 21. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. 
I want to look at Isaiah 65 and 66. There's some choice verses in there. But the verses we'll be looking at are bookended by the latter part of verse 12 in chapter 65 and the latter part of verse 4 in 66. They're virtually identical. Very little difference. One is singular, another is plural. It says, Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. That's 65 verse 12. Now 66 verse 4. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. I'm connecting that with verse 13 in Revelation 3. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's serious business with the Lord, and it needs to be serious business with us that we heed his word. In verse, uh, in chapter 65, verse 15 through 19, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself on the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And then in chapter 66, verse 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made. All those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This is a part of having an ear to hear. It's an ear to hear his word and to tremble at it. And was reminded of Matthew 5, verse 3. We were looking at this the last couple of times we've, we've met in our home on Friday evenings because it seems such a key verse to understand the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and what's come out of our study there is just recognizing that the very beginning of receiving the kingdom of God is understanding that how destitute we are. We are poor in spirit. And only when we start there are we able to grasp our need of Christ, our desperate need of Christ. So with that understanding then, he who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us be ready, longing for his appearing, ready, investing the gifts that he has given us, desiring to have something to present to Christ. Not that it would be of anything of us. We have nothing to offer ourselves. But he has given us his Holy Spirit. And we are able to invest that in the kingdom of God, edifying one another. And and in that way, to... There can be a see uh, we can see a gain. It's a gain of his uh, the the increase of his kingdom and his spirit working in each other to edify one another. Let us give ourselves to that. Let us recognize that we don't have to have a tremendous amount of strength, just a little. Faith like a mustard seed, because it's his strength. He's the one that works to will to do his good will in our lives. May the Lord bless his word and his thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we desire to to be yours, yours alone. To have no other rival loves. to long for and love your appearing, to rejoice and love your church as you do, and to learn to do that more and more each day. Father, there are so many things that you want to plant in our lives. You want to make us oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And we want to look to you, Lord, with, with desire, desire to be with you, desire to please you, desire to invest your spirit and your kingdom that, that you may have increase through us, an earthen vessel that you have chosen to allow your spirit to remain on us. May you get the fruit that you have intended and that you're worthy of. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.